0: This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Zoo's Incense. They make exquisite hand-rolled incense cones with natural ingredients sourced from five continents, and they never use synthetics or charcoal. I've fallen nose over heels in love with their many magical blends, such as their Moon Mix, which is made from myrrh, sandalwood, and aris root. Go to zoosincense.com, that's Z as in zebra, O-U-Z as in zebra, incense.com, and use offer code WITCH to get free shipping on orders over $20. Let Zoo's Incense transform your space into a sanctuary. The world is filled with bewitching people and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to the Witch Wave. Yes, witches, it's our 13th episode, and it's a mighty special one because it features a conversation with one of my dearest friends and absolute favorite artists in the world, Jesse Bransford. And I'll tell you all about him in a few moments. But first, I want to talk about the number 13 because it is a number that is very close to my witchly little heart like the word witch, the number 13 has been maligned for centuries, but actually has great magic associated with it. And some of those associations are in fact quite witchly. But how did the number 13 become considered to be unlucky in the first place? So much so that you'll still find buildings that skip 13 in their floor numbering systems. As Louisa Tish writes in her groundbreaking book, Jambalaya, quote, "...superstition is a belief or practice whose origin and context has been lost to us and or is in conflict with the beliefs of the dominating culture." Unquote. And it is hard to find the origin or context of our triskaidekaphobia or fear of the number 13. There's a really short video you can watch about this, created by my friends Mitch Horowitz and Ronnie Thomas, as part of their Origins, Superstitions web series. As Mitch explains, fear of the number 13 can be traced as far back as ancient India, where there was a belief that 13 people sitting together was highly unlucky. And in Norse mythology, the trickster god Loki was the thirteenth deity to show up at a banquet in Valhalla that devolved into violent chaos. Like probably many of you, I first learned of this superstition via the story of the Last Supper, where infamous traitor Judas Iscariot was said to be the thirteenth person at the table but we witches know that the number 13 is actually one of the most holy numbers there is as donna hennes writes quote 13 is the number of blood fertility and lunar potency 13 is the lucky number of the great goddess and she's right There are 13 moon cycles in a year, and likewise, most menstruating females have 13 cycles in their year. Many covens traditionally have 13 members, and even in Catholicism, it's been believed that visions of Mother Mary would most likely appear on the 13th day of the month. On a personal note, five years ago, I wrote an essay for Huffington Post declaring 2013 to be the year of the witch. And in retrospect, it's clear that it was right around that time that public interest in witchcraft began to rise on a mass scale. Back to the present, in just a few days, we'll be having Friday the 13th, another day that has a lot of superstition around it. Allegedly, it was Friday, October 13th of 1307 that the Knights Templar began to be slaughtered. Fridays are associated with goddess energy, because Friday comes from Freya, and she's the Norse goddess of love, sex, and gold. In Judaism, Friday is also associated with Shekinah, the feminine aspect of God, who is said to be welcomed as the Sabbath bride at Shabbat, which starts on Friday evenings at sundown. And so Friday the 13th has a double whammy of goddess energy for us to tap into. So whenever there's a Friday the 13th, and there's another one coming this year in July, it's a great day to celebrate the goddess, the witch, the moon, and the cycles of nature which we all live by. Perhaps you can do a ritual or have a beautiful meal to honor this divine energy. Doing so will also be a gorgeous act of reclamation, a way of turning something that's been tarnished and sullied with superstition back into spiritual gold. It pleases me so much to have my friend Jesse Bransford on this 13th episode, as he has been such a source of good luck in my own life. He's an incredible occult artist and scholar who's taught me so much and who has been largely responsible for so many of my visions coming into reality, from the Occult Humanities Conference that we do together biennially at NYU, to the Language of the Birds Occult and Art Show that he invited me to curate at 80 Washington Square East Gallery in 2016. He's such an inspiration to me and the most wonderful collaborator and comrade, and I can't wait to share our conversation with you. But first, let's check and see what's come through on the Witch Wire.
1: Who is it? Witches!
0: Mary Elizabeth writes, How do you stay active in your practice when it's so easy not to be? This is a lot of work, and I sometimes feel like I'm too lazy for it. But instead of shrugging it off like I used to, I'm riddled with guilt. How do you balance downtime and work and your practice? Do you have any suggestions for things I can do that are relatively low energy that will keep me plugged into the good stuff in the universe at those points in life when things are really crazy and I'm exhausted or depressed? Well, Mary Elizabeth, first of all, let me just say, I hear you. We all have a lot going on, and it seems like the older we get, the more shoulds we add to our lists. We should all be great at our work, wonderful at our relationships, eating perfectly nutritious food, exercising regularly, making the world a better place, and of course, looking amazing while we're doing all of it. It's a really tall and, I would argue, impossible order already. So adding a spiritual practice on top of all of that can sometimes feel like much too much. But here's the thing. Spiritual practice actually helps with all of that other stuff. It puts everything into perspective. It recharges you. It centers you. It feeds you. So if your practice feels depleting or overwhelming, then it's probably in need of a rethink right now. So here's what I suggest. Start small and start with the heart. Pick one tiny gesture and don't overthink it. Doing something simple that comes from a place of love is going to be more effective than some elaborate ritual that you have to stress out about planning and doing or not doing as the case may be. Maybe you have one candle and one picture of an inspiring person or deity or painting, and you know that when you light that candle, you are honoring their energy and welcoming it into your life. Maybe it's a list you make of three things that you're grateful for, and you do that list each day, or each Friday, or on the first of each month, maybe every new moon or full moon, you leave out an offering to a moon goddess of your choosing. Or maybe you come up with something else yourself entirely. Remember, your spiritual practice serves you. So you in turn can serve the highest frequency of whatever name you call it. You may need to try different things and adjust and play as you go. My own practice is shape-shifting and evolving all the time. Just remember, all you have to do is approach it with a sense of ease and love. And as with anything, you might fall off the horse, so to speak, and miss a spiritual appointment. That's okay. Let me tell you a little secret. It happens to all of us. Just start again when you can spirit is always here and always ready for you so get started now on to my guest jesse bransford is an artist whose drawings not only explore various magical symbol systems but are in fact visual spells themselves He's exhibited internationally at venues including the Carnegie Museum of Art, the UCLA Hammer Museum, and PS1 Contemporary Art Center. And I've put his work in literally every show I've ever curated because I'm such a huge fan. Jesse is also an associate professor of art at NYU and the chair of the Department of Art and Art Professions. He's also one of the editors of Black Mirror, a gorgeous occult art journal that's published by Fulgur Esoterica. And speaking of which, this month, Fulgur Esoterica is also releasing Jesse's incredible book of Icelandic talismanic drawings called A Book of Staves, and I couldn't be more excited for it. Now, I know Jesse very well, so I could talk to him for years, and I have, but it was a rare treat to get to sit with him and really trace his journey as an artist, a magic maker, and a scholar. Jesse joined me in person here in my Brooklyn apartment to celebrate his book release and his upcoming solo art show, which will be opening at Ortega E. Gasset Projects in Brooklyn on April 21st. Jesse Bransford, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Well, I was saying to you offline, Jesse, that in some ways you might be my most challenging guest so far because I know you really, really well and some might think that that would make this easier, but you know, you and I could probably talk for 70 days in a row while recording, so... (laughs) Keeping us on point and succinct is going to be a challenge, but I think I'm up for it.
1: I'm up for it, too. Hell yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I want to start um, by talking about you, of course, as an artist, even though you wear a lot of different hats. Um, I think of that as your primary identifier in the world.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a battle, and uh, it does. I do have to remind myself on many occasions that I'm actually an artist
0: oh you're an artist through and through and i often call you an art mage because you are one of the first people that i ever met in person who not only identified as an artist but as a magician or at least someone who uses art as a kind of magic working and that made such a huge impression on me when we met gosh, it must have been close to 10 years ago yeah. now.
1: It's funny, um, on that point, I mean, it's something, there are so many contemporary artists that I would consider practitioners. And the the more I sort of wear it on my sleeves, the more people I meet that sort of whisper to me that they have a practice. And it's something about, something about my adolescence, and um, I, we've talked about this before, but something about my adolescence just made me, not care. Um, I don't know. Part of it was my upbringing. Part of it were, you know, relatives and family around me just telling me to be myself. Um, I had a very influential uncle who was gay and this was, you know, in the seventies the when it wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think he was really, um, strong and encouraging, just, you know, being, being, being yourself and, you know, flying your freak flag.
0: So one of the things that, that I also think about you as though, and we're going to talk mostly about art, but you've also been a teacher. You've taught at NYU for how many years now?
1: 15, more than 15 years. Wow. I think my official My official docket has me less than that, but um, they only started counting when I was full-time. I was an adjunct for like five years, I think.
0: Okay. And you're also a beautiful writer, and um, you are a practitioner. You, You do all of these different things and are involved in so many different projects. But I thought just for listeners... It, it might be good to start talking about how we even met which is I used to run this arts and events space called Observatory which I've mentioned on the show before and in I believe it was the year 2009 um, a friend of yours recommended you to me as mm-hmm. somebody who might be a great lecturer mm-hmm. and I don't even remember if we met before that event?
1: No, we didn't. We didn't. It was an email correspondence and um, I showed up cold. Um, And yeah.
0: Yeah. And basically I said, Hey, Jesse, would you like to come speak? And you pitched this idea of a lecture on the Crowley tarot deck.
1: (laughs) When I go back and think about that lecture, I just have to laugh.
0: Why? Because
1: it was insane. I mean, talking about the tarot is hard and I'm not I don't consider myself... I mean, I have since met people that are real experts in the tarot. And to try to talk about the Crowley tarot in conjunction with the history of the tarot is its just such a mess. And um, <laughs> that lecture was all over the place. And I think I felt like I was r- racing.
0: Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> you first of all, you were amazing. And let let me just say this was a relatively smallish room. I think we could fit comfortably 50 people in there. Mm-hmm. And you had so many people show up for your lecture between your students and your friends and You know, fans of your art, that I said to you, hey, we're not going to be able to fit all these people in. Would you consider doing it twice? And you were so gracious and generous and you went through this very complicated, beautiful, inspiring lecture. (laughs) Yes, at like top speed. It was so incredible and I could not imagine you doing it again and yet you did. You just like dug deep and the second time you were just as like frenetic and energetic and brilliant and it was really amazing and I was just like yeah this guy is going <laughs> to be my friend like I don't care what I have to do I need this person in my life
1: I um, I think about sort of the touchstones to my relationship to speaking in public and speaking in general. And it, I, it occurs to me that when I was in art school, a lot of my friends and people that are still friends with me today were performance artists. And I hated the idea of doing performance. And yet, um, Teaching and and you know sharing information is a kind of performance, but I think I've taken a lot of cues from all the performance art that I saw with these these people that I went to school with over the years. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, while you're you're just a very engaging and dynamic person in general, but watching you speak, I just think about oh my god, your students must be the luckiest fucking kids (laughs) in the world because they basically have you know this combination of like what would you say, Dumbledore and Snape like teaching. art while they're undergrads in a fine art program at NYU, you know, in the middle of arguably one of the most artistic cities in the world.
1: It's I, the Dumbledore Snape thing really makes me laugh. Um, just a total aside, I was in a used um, a, a junk shop in Atlanta where I grew up with my mom a couple of years. I think it was the second year that I was uh, became after I became chair of the department. And I'm always trying to sort of make jokes with myself about sort of being in a quote leadership position, um, at a quote, you know, research one level university. Um, and I was going through the junk shop and, um, it was a collection of, of, uh, really cheaply framed, um, drawings from clearly like a high school, AB or AP, uh, art, portfolio and it was portraits of Snape and um there was no portrait of Dumbledore but I bought I bought them with the intention of having Snape framed over my desk. Uh, perfect. <laughs> and I still haven't gotten around to doing that. I really should do that before before I step down. Oh
0: my God. But you do have a sign on your door that says what is, what is it? <laughs> Professor of the dark
1: arts. Yeah, the um there's a you know, everybody there's a lot of of humor in the department. And um, I think one of the, another way that I've sort of been able to be so open about my um, sort of alternative religious practices um, has been to sort of approach it with a certain degree of levity and humor. Um, And, you know, play is such an important part of all this. And, um, you know, it's come up in in other podcasts that you've done, um, but I just would underline it. I mean, I think the, the notion that there's a right way and a, a, a you know a proper way it's no it's play um, and it's an extension of um, just sort of stay, keeping your eyes open and and paying attention to the world
0: I love that yeah I always think about and, and you and I talk about this a lot that quality of reverent irreverence yeah. and and how that is the space I believe where the most potent magic happens like Like, yes, take this all very seriously and then don't take any of it seriously at all, because it's, you know, this imaginal space that we're occupying when we're doing our creative work or we're doing our magical work. And so we can personalize it and have fun with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, one of the one of the authors that I encountered um, that talked frankly about the idea of magic or action at a distance was Robert Anton Wilson. And he has a wicked sense of humor, and I, I really related to that. And actually, all of I think all of the really good writers. I mean, Dion Fortune has a hilarious sense of humor. Um, another uh, artist practitioner that I've been. Um, able to sort of have a lot of exposure to who's just sort of coming into relevance is Ethel uh, Ithel Colquhoun. Oh, and she had a sense amazing. of humor too. Um, and I think, yeah, most, I think most occultists um, or esoteric practitioners or however you want to categorize it. I think there's definitely a big spoonful of humor that's ladled on top. I, it's just the propositions that you're operating from are kind of preposterous. I mean, And if you can't laugh at it, then you're kind of, you're, you're, uh, you're going to get into trouble.
0: (laughs) Totally. So I want to take listeners through, um, just because this is obviously not a visual medium. Anyone who's not familiar with, with your work, I I want to (laughs) attempt to describe it. And it's going to be a little bit challenging because you've gone through so many different, very immense bodies of work and series, but if I may be so bold, I would describe your work as incorporating a lot of um, sacred geometry. There's a lot of very precise, beautiful line work. And I don't mean the word design in a small way, but, but there really is that draftsmanship yeah. that comes through. absolutely. And, you know, there are times that I'll see a piece of yours and I can't believe, and I mean, this as such a compliment. I can't believe it came from a human hand because right. you have such this, this precision. And yet you have that. Um, and you're incorporating a lot of different symbolic systems and magical spell work and sigils, which we'll dive into in a moment. Yeah. But you also incorporate this loose, painterly, sometimes watercolor, I believe is a lot of the medium you use, wash, that feels a lot more free. So it's this beautiful tension between precision and then, I don't know, like a liberation Um, kind of energy. Did, did,
1: no, no, <laughs> is I, that I, helpful? No, I think that's I think that's a really accurate description. I mean, I can talk a little bit about maybe sort of the origins of um, my quote style or please, styles. Please, please. I think a lot of it really had to do with sort of um, growing up on the cusp of of the computer and sort of realizing, um, recognizing the computer as a tool for, for creation, um, really early on. It's just to date myself. I think I, uh, when I took a class in college on Photoshop, it was Photoshop three. Wow. I think, yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, (laughs) just
0: brush that dust off. Yeah, exactly.
1: But, um, one of the things that, that fascinated me, not just was working with the tools, but sort of realizing that, that it was still drawing or that, um, that, I think of myself as a person that makes drawings. Um, th- to call myself a painter just seems a little disingenuous because I'm not really making paintings. I've really made a, a concerted effort to to stick to paper and or sort of mural work. Um, but the the computer really sort of opened my eyes to I, I could see that the way that we make things and the way that we look at things was about to change. Pretty radically. This is like 1994, 5, 6, somewhere around there. Um, and I picked up the tools and started working with them. And over time, and I, I, I try not to participate in dialectical thinking. I mean, I think it's, it's useful. You're going to have the, to define
0: dialectical Well, just said this, that. You listeners. know, you have these
1: two, these two things. The idea, um, I think one of the big dialectical or, or binaries that was mm-hmm. at work. When thinking about the computer was the difference between like you know the machine versus the hand or the the machine versus the human the the hand drawn versus the computer produced um and I was playing a lot with that so um the the desire for precision in the line work is really born out of an early um, obsession with trying to emulate the precision that technological uh, techniques can bring to like line art, yeah. And it wasn 't just you know obviously, there are technologies that have been doing that long before the computer. I mean the whole history of posters and prints and woodcuts and all that sort of creates an unbroken line- lineage or history but for me at the at the time, all of that was really sort of like coming coming into question again.
0: So it's really interesting because your earliest work definitely also has a little bit of a tinge of like sci-fi and Star Trek and a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. Like, I yep. feel like I kind of know the kid you were or at least yeah. part of the kid that you were. Yeah. So how did you then go from that point into magic? What got you into magic in the occult? And when did you start incorporating that into your into your artwork?
1: It's a really weird, I mean, there's several different threads. Um, The first thread, interestingly enough, was being raised in a completely agnostic home environment. My parents were radical in their belief that uh, whatever spiritual or religious beliefs I decided to come to should come from me and not from anyone else. Growing up in the southeastern United States, you know, there's there's a lot of religious fanaticism down there.
0: Yeah, and you grew up in Georgia and Georgia, Tennessee. Uh,
1: my gran- my parents were from Western Tennessee, very rural. My parents were part of what they called the New South. They, they were the, uh, not the first, but they were um, college educated and moved to the big city and mm-hmm. all that whole narrative. Mm-hmm. But that absence of of uh, a of a sort of culturally sanctioned religious belief. I think made me a lot more inquisitive. And then couple that with in retrospect the realization that there were a lot of folk magic traditions that my parents and grandparents participated in. Things as simple as, you know, um you know, broken mirror, seven years, bad luck. Sure. um, Those kinds of of ingrained folkish sort of traditions. Um, my parents were, my mom, especially was, a, is, is a little more, um, than just simple. Um, it's, it's a little more than, than just folk superstition. There's a, uh, um, she's has an interest in crystals. She has an interest in, in nature and Didn't all stuff. Didn't she get stuff. you your
0: first tarot deck too?
1: She did. Um, and this was all born out of, you know, she recognizing, um, my brother and I at the time sort of like exploring these different territories and, and her interest in it, like, hmm, I've always wanted to know about this and, you know, just getting it on a lark. Interestingly enough, she bought us Crowley's tarot deck just because she thought it was the prettiest.
0: It is very, very um, beautiful.
1: So there's that angle and that's that's one trajectory. And then the other trajectory is, uh, it, you mentioned Dungeons, Dungeons and Dragons, games and, and boy games Fantasy stuff. I mean, that definitely that was a huge part of my adolescence. I was a geeky kid. I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, I mean, I did actually, but I didn't have. Um, I spent a lot of time by myself, mm-hmm. and um, that solitary time is, you know, the space of reverie. And um, you know, there was a lot that the the, the fad at the time, um, The Child of Star Wars, 1977. I mean, I remember it very clearly. And, um, you know, we can talk about that as science fiction, but it was was also, there's a heavy dose of fantasy, mythological speculation in it, you know, coming back to it and reading uh, Joseph Campbell in college, or, you know, that was an access point for it. So there's that. And then finally, there's just a deep and abiding interest in knowing as much as I can about stuff that's not me, you know, knowing about the world and being interested in the world. Um, I was a precocious adolescent. I, you know, smoked pot and took drugs. And I think that had um, not to trivialize those experiences, that definitely had an effect on my, um, you know, my outlook. Anything that sort of availed itself to a, a super sensible space was sort of, to be investigated
0: so it sounds like you had a lot of different inputs but eventually you know you find your way to fine art you start doing these drawings and as I recall some of your earliest drawings that involved the occult were a series that you did that kind of worked their way through the planets is that right
1: yeah I uh my education involved a lot of um a lot of reading. Um, and I stumbled upon, um, I, I did a double degree in college, and uh, the academic degree was in the history of the sciences, or what they call science and technology studies. It's a long, circuitous, I mean, I just kind of ended up there. But um, through, through the, the history that I was learning from that perspective, I ran into the author Francis Yates. And uh, Francis Yates wrote a couple of amazing books about memory theaters and memory palaces. Um, it's a Renaissance where actually it's it it's from antiquity and has a, a history that basically ends in the Renaissance of um, how to construct spaces for memorizing oratory. But it becomes increasingly magical and occult because it's trying to include everything. And um, I saw one of the drawings um, that's reproduced in her book, The Art of Memory, by a Renaissance scholar named Camillo. And he aligned the different rooms in the memory palace to the seven planets of uh, that you can actually see in the night sky um, which are basically uh, Mercury Venus Mars Jupiter Saturn the Sun and the moon mm-hmm. and um, uh, a lot of Renaissance magic and a lot of European magic is sort of built on those sort of seven quote wandering stars um, and that's real um, that was where magic as an academic pursuit sort of came into play. And that was how I was treating it originally. But making art is a very sort of open-ended, loose, confused, um, nebulous process. And as I was reading all of these texts about Renaissance magic and how Renaissance magic functioned and started going to primary sources, um, she talked a lot about cornelius agrippa's three books of occult philosophy which ended up being the seminal text that i used to um to orient all of the seven planets work
0: and approximately when did he write that was it 17th um, century i
1: think it's the 17th okay. century yeah. okay it's in the middle in uh in the middle of the reformation wars so agrippa the book was in print and it was really well annotated um uh, donald tyson's uh, version And I started using it as an orientation point. And I wasn't doing magic per se, but I was thinking a lot about it. And I was thinking about it historically and, you know, magic as an origin point or as a point where the sciences emerge out of. Um, It's pretty much universally accepted that the Renaissance was the moment where Western civilization started to pull apart the, the different sciences and getting away from scholastic thinking, et cetera, et cetera. But instead of thinking about it as a triumph of modernity, I was kind of thinking we kind of missed a turn along the way and started plugging it into a lot of my thinking about like deep ecology and, you know, just, you know, global warming and all this stuff, which is something that I learned about watching nature channels when I was like seven. So I've been like, you know, worrying about global warming ever, it seems like. And, um, So I I started taking magic a little more seriously, perhaps, than these authors were intending me to.
0: I'm going to stop you for a sec, Jesse, because I want listeners to understand that my knowledge about Agrippa is that he was kind of coming up with a theory of sympathetic magic or correspondence, right? That, like, each planet has associated... Uh, metals, associated numbers, associated energies. Is that right? And yeah, you were kind yeah. of exploring each planet one by one with yeah. your artwork?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. He's interesting because he wasn't really making any of this stuff up. He was accumulating it. I mean, he was looking at all of the medieval sources, looking at the Roman sources, looking at the Near Eastern sources, and trying to find like a, quote, you know, universal wisdom, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is a, a late motif in a lot of... Um, academic or a lot of esoteric thinking, this idea that there's a, a secret truth that runs underneath everything. I, I tend to be a little less like that and think more that there are lots of different pieces that look like each other. But anyway, um, so yeah, the, the work that I was making was in relationship to this, but my relationship to the material changed. So um, by the time I got about halfway through, I was doing a lot of reality testing.
0: I want to hear more about that. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Blood Milk Jewels. I have loved Blood Milk for years because each piece of their jewelry has a story that adds to its aesthetics and talismanic qualities. Their designs are inspired by seances and surrealism and shadowy goddesses and so many more of my favorite things. They use materials like sterling silver and natural crystals and gemstones such as moonstone, labradorite, and onyx. And so each piece is crafted to be psychic armor. I also love that they've been handmade in Philadelphia using local resources since 2008— and that it's a female-owned and operated company. So check out bloodmilkjewels.com and adorn yourself with dark, sparkling beauty. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. I'm here talking to Jesse Bransford. So, Jesse, you just left us with the very intriguing phrase, reality testing. So it sounds to me like you were working your way, making primarily drawings and I, I believe some murals about these different magical planets or the um, different magic that planets can emanate or conjure and magical things started happening. Is that right?
1: Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. (laughs) I started, uh, when you think about sympathetic magic, it's, it's a, it's a way of approaching a world where metaphor means more than, it's more than just description. So it's like coincidence, uh, happenstance, these things, if you start paying attention to them, it gets weird. And that sounds that sounds kinda of soft skulled but it's true. And um I'd invite anybody who is sort of incredulous about this material to um actually, you know, see what happens. And this is what I call boundary testing. I I think I'm actually misquoting Robert Anton Wilson, um, who was a, a, a skeptical um a skeptical inquirer into all all of this stuff. Um but I I you know it started in cologne i was doing work on mars and i was in cologne germany and i was working late because um i was doing a wall piece that was taking a lot of time so i was burning the midnight oil and was using a um an overhead projector and the the ac dc to you know the the power conversion thing was not working out very well. And, um, I was having a lot of problems with the electrical stuff, but I had, essentially had this, um, projected, uh, magic square. And if you don't know what a magic square is, like, I just refer you to Agrippa because that's a, it's, it's a really fascinating number magic thing. Um, I was doing this magic square and, um, the projector was basically completing this triangle of, um, of a relationship to the wall. And um, at the stroke of midnight, (laughs) the power converter exploded and the entire room filled with uh, the smell of ozone and, um, you know, uh, the boundary testing and the sort of like, you know, spooky wisdom, conspiracy theory stuff, pretty much in any, any, any area that talks about sort of uh, uh, super celestial intervention, the smell of sulfur or ozone um, is brought up, and I sort of that popped into my head, and um, it gets even weirder. Um, my my girlfriend at the time, uh, pretty much right at the same time as this thing happened, had a really disturbing dream about me and a doppelganger, and it was it was pretty crazy. I should also say that I had been sort of um, doing little experiments of you know you know dream dream journaling and 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 that sort of thing, mostly. Well, a part of it in relationship to the artwork, but also sort of like self-improvement and, um, you know, therapeutic like work. But from that point, I just sort of realized that I've already taken three steps into this space of of essentially making what ended up being a 10 year long project of an homage to these, um, you know, Worshipped entities basically, and that the entities for lack of a better word, seemed to be telling me to pay a little bit more attention. Mm. so I started and um, uh, interestingly enough, this was right as I um, after Mars, I started working with Mercury and this if you're familiar with the symbolism of the planets, Mercury is the bearer of messages between heaven and Earth. Um, And so that was, it started to ramp up at that point. And then it really got its full tilt when I started working with the moon. And when I started working with the moon, it was the first specifically feminine image that I had been working with. And I was also thinking a lot about sort of my interest in feminism and my interest in the divine feminine and all of these sort of different categories. But more than anything, I just started doing um, what we would call like, you know, basic lunar worship, full moon rituals, observing starting to observe um uh, the traditional pagan calendar of you know the the lunar cycles and the season cycles
0: You were getting your witch on, Jesse. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and <laughs> I I was pretty I was pretty honest with myself about it and um and again was talking with people and I was talking not just with other people who were interested in this material I was talking to anthropologists I was talking to sociologists and everybody seemed to think it was a good idea that I was, you know, you know, sailing out into this, this territory. Um, and I think that was about the time that we met, um, during the moon, more or less. I Ooh,
0: think that makes
1: sense. If I'm thinking about this, right. Oh, yeah, I love you know. that
0: as even if it's apocryphal, let's keep it in the story. That's well, just too
1: good. I think that's pretty accurate. Actually. I love
0: it. Okay. Jesse, you work through these seven planets for 10 years then you start doing, because um, c- you are definitely a completionist. You're one of the most like <laughs> thorough readers and deep researchers and bibliophiles that I know. So you don't do anything halfway. After the planets... <laughs> I think that's when you got into Tantra drawings. Is that right? So, or um, you got more into like Hindu kind of um mystic paths and then you eventually found your way to Icelandic magic. I, I just want people yeah. to know that you are um you started broadening out a lot of the different systems that you were studying and started noticing Uh, relationships between them all.
1: Absolutely. The word I use is syncretic, but I've since learned that there are other words, um, that, uh, syncretic is actually in opposition or is a different way of thinking about this idea of the perennial wisdom. And I I actually think, I I think syncretic is a better word for me because I do think that there is, there are truths plural. Mm -hmm. Um, but I I found that the the tendency to try to glue everything together did so or often does so at the expense of the the origin point of the the culture from which the material comes from. I you know, and I think there are good things about this way of approaching things and there are bad ways about it, but um suffice it to say I I would find material it would it would interest me and I would pursue it. I, I made an allusion to this idea of like self-work or self, um, self-improvement. And, um, I, uh, I've started doing yoga around this time and it was, you know, it was sold to me as exercise, but I very quickly realized Mm -hmm. that it's actually, it's a magical tradition. Um, and this is something that the Americanization of yoga has chosen to leave behind in a lot of the more sort of um, commercialized versions, which it's, is what it is. But I realized that I was very interested in the spiritual path that yoga has attached to it. And and one of the more obvious ones, um, obvious spiritual paths is Tantra, which is, um, you know, obviously very much um, attached to the idea of like embodiment and and a relationship to sort of pleasure through the body or or just, again, more boundary testing. I mean, it's a it's a 2000 year old science of of mind body boundary testing.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's not just sexuality, right? I know that's a big part of it. And a lot of people who might hear that word think of like sting and tantric sex and all that shit, but I mean, that's a part of it. Sure. But, but my understanding is that there's more to it than just that.
1: Well, the teacher that I was working with was, um, was pretty funny because, um, I'm not particularly limber. I'm, uh, you know, I'm coming to this in my late four or my, early forties. So, you know, there's a lot of damage that can't be undone. Right. (laughs) Um, and he said, but he said, you know, you're, you're not the most flexible person, but you know how to breathe. And I think, you know, ultimately, you know, what yoga is, is about breathing. It's about, you know, the inhale and exhale, the interiorizing and exteriorizing of breath as like a recognition that like we are both in and of the world that we inhabit. Mm. And it's, um, it sounds, it's, it's a very talked about thing and it's, you know, the, the new age movement is it's a, it's a a benchmark for the new age movement. This idea that there is no distinction between the mind and the body, but it's true. (laughs) Totally. And the other thing to say is, you know, we're, we're now talking about my personal life and and this is something that was very weird or is very weird about being an artist, which is your art and your life are kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm, I'm, I'm starting at this moment in time and and basically from here forward and here being about 2012, I'm doubling down on magic as a, as a way to, to think about my artistic practice um, because I'm realizing that my art is my life and my life is my art and that I want it to be something other than a simple profession. Um, and I, you know, thought back to, you know, the existentialist who, you know, you know, the worst thing you can do can do is identify with your profession. And I was thinking to myself, well, is art a profession? And I don't think it is, or at least I don't think it has to be or it isn't necessarily. And that, you know, creative process um, can have a a, a very positive integrating uh, perspective on your own personal life. Um, So anyway, it was a series of revelations for me to recognize that, you know, I'm living this life as an artist and that the two are connected.
0: I I love that you brought that up because that gets me to a piece of yours that, um, as a, just a big fan of your work and also your friend, I, I think shifted things, at least if not for you, certainly in the way I thought about your work, and frankly thought about art and magic in general, which is a piece that you did called Aqua Soul. So, so you did this piece uh, for a gallery on the Lower East Side, and it was... A magic spell that you painted on the floor um it looks very much like a magic wheel a sigil you know you were paying a lot of attention to the directions um that you were incorporating i think different elements and colors and numbers and you also had a bowl in the middle i believe it was some kind of crystal glass bowl crystal Ah, Prague crystal with salt water in it. And the idea was that the water would evaporate and the salt crystals would be left behind. And this was a gesture or a magic working you were doing for the artist David. It was, in my opinion, a very um, generous piece of work because not only are you doing it for this other artist that you, you know, have a relationship (laughs) with or uh, that you're friends with... um, but there was no way you could sell it. It was as much in the space of like it wasn't performance art or video art or anything like that, but it of the of the similar ilk in that no one could have really bought that piece unless i suppose you like recreated it for them in their house or something. Like
1: No, no, you're I mean you're you're getting you're getting to a a pretty important point of how i think about a lot of my work.
0: Exactly. And and it also just seemed to crystallize, if you'll forgive the, the pun, um, the idea of art as a spell in both the way that you approach, I believe a lot of your artwork and frankly in the way I look at art. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that piece. And, and I know you've done a lot of similar kind of work sure. since yeah. then.
1: No, um, there are a couple things to, um, to talk about. First of all is again, it's like, um, making a, a sort of publicly personal gesture, um, I have known day I'd known David for like about six or seven years at that point, And we were both, um, um, very involved with the gallery feature Inc. We also showed at a gallery in Miami and had, uh, shared, um, exhibitions, um, simultaneously. So the, um, the, the, the piece that I did for him was in the, the four year of the gallery and David's show, David was the solo exhibition. And my work was, um, just sort of like the, the, um, the appetizer, if you will. <laughs> and, um, the space itself was, you know, reasonably liminal. And I just, I had been thinking a lot about uh, floor works and um, the difference between the way that painting or drawing can activate on a floor, in a floor environment, um, and how that's sort of more, um, it's different. It, it has like a, a, a kind of um, catonic sort of elemental feel to it.
0: And it's also about... <laughs> place and space as opposed to something that's like framed or on a wall right that some people might read as decorative i mean that's not fair to say but i feel like a floor piece somehow like establishes like this is the energy of the room
1: well and it was also trying to be the energy of the moment of the two of us like you know having an exhibition at the same time and um uh, david's a pisces poor Pisces. Um, <laughs>
0: Sensitive souls.
1: Uh, David's a Pisces. And interestingly enough, he he drowned as a child. Um, he, he tells the story quite eloquently, and I'm not going I can't, to, I can't do it justice, but suffice it to say, he drowned as a child. And um, in our conversations, something that kept coming up over and over again was what he called water problems. And so the piece was built around the idea of trying to help alleviate some of these, quote, water problems. And I thought that um, the idea was that the, the the drawing sort of encapsulated all of this energy and was it was sort of built around the idea of his status as a Pisces. I took his his birth time and did a, a quick chart, and there were references, which I mean I could barely remember the name of the piece just now, so <laughs> I won't get too I won't try to go too far into that, but. But it was built around an idea of, of of these these sort of diagrammatic drawings as a loose portrait of David, um, and then in the centerpiece of it, this bowl of of salt water that over time the water evaporates, um, and so the water evap- as the water evaporates, it's supposed to be dispelling like any negative associations that David has with his water wateriness. There's a um, a long. I mean, I think this is this piece. David and I are going to have a lifelong conversation about this piece because the jury's out as to what exactly the result of the uh, of the working was. But that's a, that's another story.
0: On that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hey guys, I was just sent a pair of headphones from Studio Sweden, and I'm really digging them. Studio is a new headphone company that decided to come up with an affordable alternative to all of those overpriced brands out there. You know the ones. And they've done a really terrific job. Studio headphones have super stylish Scandinavian design, come in both earbud and over the ear options, and are Bluetooth enabled with over 24 hours of active battery life. And they come with a tangle-free cord option that's removable, if you're old school like me. I like a cord, what can I say? Best of all, all of their headphone models average $99, which is well below market rate for studio-quality headphones. And even better, they're offering Witchwave listeners 15% off any order with offer code THEWITCHWAVE, all one word, so you can get your very own pair just go to studio.com, that's S U D I O.com, and use offer code The Witch Wave today. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. I'm talking to artist Jesse Bransford. So, Jesse, we were just talking about kind of a shift that your work made, um, especially in regards to this one piece that you made for your artist friend, David Shaw, where you did this art spell for him. Right. And um, it really, I don't know, just made me love you even more because not only was it so beautiful and so magical, but there was really this spirit of generosity and heart behind the work that I feel like has imbued so much of the work that you've made moving forward. And a lot of the recent work that you've been doing is in the space of Icelandic magic and you started doing these drawings and I'm going to let you talk about them uh, more than yeah. I will. But, um, these beautiful drawings that if I'm not mistaken, you started as gifts for people, these spells that were based on Icelandic runes. Yeah. So can you talk about how you got into Icelandic magic and what your intention is with the stave drawings?
1: Sure. So I went, I went to Iceland in 2013 and, um, I, it's, it's a, it's an amazing country. I think, you know, there's a, there's a huge tourist boom going on right now. So, you know, I don't need to sell Iceland, but, um, it's a really, really beautiful country with a, a very, very sort of small population. It's like, you know, less than half a million people. And, um, it's just, it, it, it's a magical place. I don't really know how else to say it. Um, it's the one of the, I think it's, the most geothermally active country in the world. Um, there are hot pools and bubbling springs and, you know, geysers and crazy. Or are there supposed
0: to be like trolls and fairies well, and elves?
1: Well, one of the jokes, and I think it's somewhat apocryphal, but apparently um, it goes around that the Icelanders, more than 50% of the Icelandic population, when asked, at, say that they believe in elf and fairy folk. Um, and that yes. they very famously have, you know, uh, if you know about the, the the European history of of the elf lore and and troll lore, um, they live in rocks and they live in um, they uh, they they live just outside of our boundary of the universe, but in the same place. And so it feels
0: almost like Shinto to me
1: or something like
0: the spirits of the place. It's
1: definitely I mean, I think we we would call it a kind of like a spirit animism.
0: Animism. Yeah. And this
1: is something that I've been getting increasingly interested in for a lot of reasons. But um, I I went to Iceland and I um, ended up in the north corner of uh, the country um, in an area called Strandir. And um, in Strandir, there is a little museum called the Museum of Icelandic Sorcery and Witchcraft. And it announced to me the existence of uh, a very, very rich and narrowly focused folk tradition. And one of the things I was looking for at the time was something to sort of um, think about from a magical perspective that was a little more, a little um, kind of like a closed system. Um, What happens in a lot of my work is I get intellectually or, or the thinking part, I spin out. I get too far. There's too many things. Everything's connected. Um, I get overwhelmed and I get confused. And um, in this folk tradition that Iceland has, I found a a pretty narrowly focused set of of texts. There are about, um, I'd say, anywhere between like 15 and 25 um, manuscripts um, that have survived from essentially the the, the end of the medieval period up through up until the the 1920s of these um, uh, manuscript grimoires. And there's um, a logic uh, that binds them that is this this folk magic. It's an agrarian collection of superstitions and and folk beliefs that are built around these signs or markings. There are other examples of this in pretty much any culture, but because it was so finite, I went... From Strandir, I went back to Reykjavik and went to the National Library and found the catalog that, that basically, you know, here are the extant sort of witch manuals that existed. Um, another thing that's interesting about Iceland's witchcraft tradition is that the, there were a lot of men and there were a lot of, uh, it, it wasn't all men. So it, it's, the, there was a little more gender fluidity in the history, if you will. The witch trials and witch burnings, which were the last in uh, Europe, were almost universally men so i was really attracted to it and um, was doing a lot of research and work with it and then from there it sort of opened up and i started learning about sort of like contemporary heathen practices and um uh, the the dream vision um magic that they have is called seath or seethier those traditions were really exciting to me because they they chimed up in a lot of ways with the yoga practice that has been tiding and ebbing in my personal life. But um, it, it, it clicked, basically, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. And so I started making these, these little drawings. And I had just moved out of a studio. I spent about a year without a proper studio and was just working at a desk. So the scale came down and um, I got very comfortable in this, this really small scale. So I ended up making a, a series, it's ongoing, it's a series of small sort of talismanic drawings that are uh, loosely based or, or have a, a tied and ebb relationship to these Icelandic grimoires. And um, over time, I've, it's, it's a language, it's a visual language and there's an internal logic to it. Um, And just
0: to give listeners an idea, each drawing is meant to be a blessing or a spell or a protective device. So, I mean, I have a couple from you, but one is about dispelling sorrow. Um, and you know, sometimes it can be, you know, spells for, um, finding love or spells to protect against a spiritual attack. I mean, they're yeah, very specific. Very specific. Yeah. In, intentions behind the drawings and they look abstract. I mean, it's beautiful line work and rings and arrows and dots of color and washes of color. Uh, so they feel like these holy, charged, as you say, talismanic drawings.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and they are intended that way. Um, you know, the idea of, um, first of all, the, the thing about folk magic that's really awesome is that um, it has rules, but it's also, it's also provisional, right? So um, it's whatever works right? And, um, that's
0: my style of witchcraft. Well, and I'm finding too
1: that, that, you know, high ritual magic is a beautiful thing of its, of its own, but there is something to be said too about the, the provisional and the, um, the openness that, um, what I would characterize as a folk folk tradition sort of avails itself. Um, and it's, it really is whatever works, you know, it's, it's, it's contingent, but the drawings, and, and this was a, a, A really nice way to think about art for me, too, is that, you know, art as a contingency or art as um, having like a purpose uh, beyond its purely formal value. And this is something I've battled with, like ever since I've started considering myself an artist. What does art do? I don't have an answer to the question. I don't think it's a question that you really want to have an answer to, but I know what it's not. And one of the things that I'm really sort of on a, a rant about these days is that it's not about commodity. Um, the, it does get commodified and of course it is always nice to sell a drawing here and there. But I, I think we're in a moment where the commodification of, of the art, of the art object and of art in general, is, causing, is devaluing it as a, a thing. And I got it involved with this material, with art, as you know, for its magical, for its transformative capacity, for basically all the same things that you could say magic is for. Um, so, in a lot of ways, and I've written about it in, in a couple of different places. Um, you know, I see art and magic as as intimately connected and and having, if if not a similar genetic relationship than certainly a a, a common origin point
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's so beautiful and that's one of the things i love so much about you and so much about your work is the intentionality behind it and the magic that you imbue in your life and in the beautiful drawings that you create so Jesse, unfortunately we're running out of time, but I wanna make sure we talk um, about where people can find these beautiful Icelandic drawings. You have a book coming out and a show. Mm-hmm. Um, when is that all happening and what is it all called?
1: Well, um, so there's a show in New York City um, in Gowanus, which is actually, it's walking distance from where Observatory originally was. Um, it's at a gallery called Ortega y Gasset, and uh, it's in Gowanus and it opens on April 21st, and it's an exhibition. Um, we alluded to it talking about yoga. It's it's two sets of work that will be shown simultaneously, and I think they have a deep relationship, a deep and abiding relationship, and thankfully the curator, um, a, a lovely man named Zahar Vax, he, he agrees, and he saw it immediately, so I, I I was a little worried that the two bodies of work didn't would would seem too different but he he didn't have that problem so that's good um so this is your mm,
0: tantric it is drawings a, it's, it's juxtaposed with your icelandic correct.
1: work so these are it's a it's a body of 10 drawings that are built around um a, a a form of worship of the divine feminine in hindu tradition called the mahavidyas and um i've been working with that i've been reading and working with that for over a about a year and a half, concurrent with the Icelandic work. And it, it's weird because they're culturally distinct, um, it's easier to talk about them as separate than it is to talk about them together. Um, but I see them as intimately related, if nothing else through me as the maker. So there'll be those drawings, but then there'll also be um, a suite of the um, of the stave, the Icelandic drawings, which I, I've been calling stave drawings. And that's um, a lot of the spells w- that I'm quoting from in the Icelandic lore would be intended to be inscribed on wooden staves that would be driven into the ground outside of your house. So stave drawings. And then concurrent with all of this is um, a dream that I've had for a long time, which is uh, a book of the Icelandic work published by um, uh, Fulger Limited, which is a, an amazing esoteric publisher who does some of the most beautiful books ever. You know, we, we know Robert and we've worked with, on... Other projects with Robert. Yeah, in the that past.
0: Robert, Robert Ansel, who's run Fulger for over twenty years now, um, creates the most exquisite art books that have to do with magic or he would call them talismanic books that you could imagine so i can think of no better match than you and fulger jesse he
1: and i really bonded on this idea of the the idea of the talismanic i mean um you know he his first book was a book of um osmond spares drawings and um he he treated it as a as a magical object and if you see these things in person they are They are charged the same way that I think I would intend my drawings to be, but anyway, this this book is um, we've been working on it for over a year, and um, I just got to see some proofs um, last week, and I'm really excited, and I think it's going to be quite a quite a thing. Um, Do you
0: have a title yet?
1: It's just called a Book of Staves, and um, the 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 fun part about it was the. Well, there were several fun things about it. Um, <laughs> I used a, a particular text um, from the Poetic Edda. Can you tell
0: folks what that is? It's
1: the collected uh, poetry of the Norse traditions. Um, they were written down in Iceland in about the, th- well, in, in the late medieval period. It's the oral tradition committed to writing.
0: So Neil Gaiman's book on Norse mythology was is his retelling of exactly. a lot of the stories exactly. from the Eddas, correct?
1: Correct. Yeah. Um so the poems themselves are quite beautiful and there's one um in particular called the Sayings of the High One which it's it's a poem spoken um by Odin and he's naming all of these different spells and talking about where magic comes from and explaining where written language comes from and these these types of things. Um So I've gotten to work with some amazing people on the text part that accompanies the the drawings. Um, In particular, the translation that I'm working with is the Oxford translation, which was done by this amazing woman, um, Carolyn Larrington. And then a very uh, generous and amazing uh, anthropologist slash archaeologist named Robert Wallace puts the work into context from that perspective. Um, He's also, I think he identifies as a practicing heathen um love it and uh and then I wrote uh, an introduction where I sort of lay out a lot of the things that we've been talking about here today um in in text um and then the best part about it is is uh it's been translated into Icelandic um there's something
0: Fabulous.
1: something really important to me about it was this idea of sort of paying homage to the origin point of the material and it just so happened that um I had uh, uh, access to someone, a native speaker, who was able to sort of back translate. And um, the Icelanders that I know are pretty weirded out (laughs) because they all speak English. So the idea of of taking an English text and back translating it into Icelandic is kind of silly. But I think it's, for me, it's a gesture of reverence. And Robert ansel the publisher actually put it in a really beautiful light he said he said yeah there you know there's a, just a handful of people that could actually read the icelandic but seeing the text on the page next to the english is like having like a, a foreign voice whispering in your ear
0: that's beautiful and jesse you look like a viking so <laughs> i feel like you're you know stepping into your full power with this icelandic magic work
1: i'll, I'll take that <laughs> yes
0: when is the book of staves available jesse? so
1: um it's been announced on the Folger website, Folger F-U-L-G-U-R dot co dot U K. That's the way they do it in the United Kingdom. Um, it's been announced. I don't think you can pre-order it yet, and it's supposed to be we're we're um, as of as of right now we're gonna have a release party the night of the opening. So there should be copies of it on hand. So awesome. if you're in the New York area, come out or to Brooklyn. Teja, e gasset April 21st, 6 to 9 p.m. I believe.
0: Fabulous. Well, I can't wait to see you there and celebrate all of this beautiful magic that you've conjured. Jesse Bransford, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Jesse Bransford for joining me. I'm so lucky to call him my brother from the Capital M Mother. And be sure to check out his magical artwork at jessebransford.com or on Instagram at jessebransford. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to let me know about something magical that happened to you? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcastgmail.com. At I'd love to hear from you, and you might make it on The Witchwire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Chiquita Pascal, thanks, Chiquita, and myself. Our theme music is by Lycanthea. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, WitchwavePodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and please give us lots and lots of stars. It really does make a difference and I'd be so grateful to you. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have an iPhone, you really might dig my witch emoji for iMessage. Fill your texts, with images of witches and spellcraft objects and magical symbols in a variety of skin tones, genders, and colors by searching for Witch Emoji, all one word, in the App Store or by going to witchemoji.com Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.